Section 9 of An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. Section 9. After him there came to the throne the priest of Hephaistos, whose name was Setos. This man, they said, neglected and held in no regard the warrior class of the Egyptians, considering that he would have no need of them. And besides other slights which he put upon them, he also took from them the yokes of cornland which had been given to them as a special gift in the reigns of the former kings, twelve yokes to each man. After this Sennacherib, king of the Arabians and of the Assyrians, marched a great host against Egypt. Then the warriors of the Egyptians refused to come to the rescue, and the priest, being driven into a strait, entered into the sanctuary of the temple and bewailed to the image of the god the danger which was impending over him. And as he was thus lamenting, sleep came upon him, and it seemed to him in his vision that the god came and stood by him, and encouraged him, saying that he should suffer no evil if he went forth to meet the army of the Arabians, for he would himself send him helpers. Trusting in these things seen in sleep, he took with him, they said, those of the Egyptians who were willing to follow him, and encamped in Pelusion. For by this way the invasion came, and not one of the warrior class followed him, but shopkeepers, and artisans, and men of the market. Then after they came there swarmed by night upon their enemies mice of the fields, and ate up their quivers and their bows, and moreover the handles of their shields, so that on the next day they fled, and being without defensive arms great numbers fell. And at the present time this king stands in the temple of Hephaistos in stone, holding upon his hand a mouse, and by letters inscribed he said these words, Let him who looks upon me learn to fear the gods. So far in the story the Egyptians and the priests were they who made the report, declaring that from the first king down to this priest of Hephaistos, who reigned last, there had been three hundred and forty-one generations of men, and that in them there had been the same number of chief priests and of kings. But three hundred generations of men are equal to ten thousand years, for a hundred years is three generations of men. And in the one and forty generations which remain, those, I mean, which were added to the three hundred, there are one thousand three hundred and forty years. Thus in the period of eleven thousand three hundred and forty years, they said that there had arisen no god in human form nor even before that time or afterwards among the remaining kings who arise in Egypt, did they report that anything of that kind had come to pass. In this time they said that the sun had moved four times from his accustomed place of rising, and where he now sets he had thence twice had his rising, and in the place from whence he now rises he had twice had his setting, and in the meantime nothing in Egypt had been changed from its usual state, neither that which comes from the earth, nor that which comes to them from the river, nor that which concerns diseases or deaths. And formerly, when Hecatios, the historian, was in Thebes, and had traced his descent and connected his family with a god in the sixteenth generation before, the priests of Zeus did for him much the same as they did for me, though I had not traced my descent. They led me into the sanctuary of the temple, which is of great size and they counted up the number showing colossal wooden statues in number the same as they said. For each chief priest there sets up in his lifetime an image of himself, 
Accordingly the priests, counting and showing me these, declared to me that each one of them was a son succeeding his own father. And they went up through the series of images from the image of the one who had died last, until they had declared this of the whole number. And when Hecatios had traced his descent and connected his family with a god in the sixteenth generation, they traced a descent in opposition to his, besides their numbering, not accepting it from him that a man had been born from a god. And they traced their counter-descent thus, saying that each one of the statues had been Pyromus, son of Pyromus, until they had declared this of the whole three hundred and forty-five statutes, each one being named Pyromus, and neither with a god nor a hero did they connect their descent. Now Pyromus means in the tongue of Hellas, honorable and good man. From their declaration then it followed that they of whom the images were had been a form like this, and far removed from being gods. But in the time before these men they said that gods were the rulers in Egypt, not mingling with men, and that of these always one had power at a time. And the last of them who was king over Egypt was Oros, the son of Osiris, whom the Hellenes call Apollo. He was king over Egypt last, having deposed Typhon. Now Osiris in the tongue of Hellas is Dionysos. Among the Hellenes Heracles and Dionysos and Pan are accounted the lastest born of the gods. But with the Egyptians Pan is a very ancient god, and he is one of those which are called eight gods while Heracles is of the second rank, who were called the twelve gods, and Dionysos is of the third rank, namely of those who were born of the twelve gods. Now as to Heracles I have shown already how many years old he is according to the Egyptians themselves, reckoning down to the reign of Amasis, and Pan is said to have existed for yet more years than these, and Dionysos for the smallest number of years as compared with the others and even for this last they reckoned down to the reign of Amasis fifteen thousand years. This the Egyptians say that they know for a certainty, since they have always kept a reckoning and wrote down the years as they came. Now the Dionysus, who is said to have been born of Semele, the daughter of Cadmus, was born about sixteen hundred years before my time, and Heracles, who was the son of Alcmene, about nine hundred years, and that Pan, who was born of Penelope, for of her and of Hermes, Pan is said by the Hellenes to have been born, came into being later than the wars of Troy, about eight hundred years before my time. Of these two accounts every man may adopt that one, which he shall find the more credible when he hears it. I, however, for my part, have already declared my opinion about them. For if these also, like Heracles, the son of Amphitryon, had appeared before all men's eyes, and had lived their lives to old age in Hellas, I mean Dionysos, the son of Semele, and Pan, the son of Penelope, then one would have said that these also had been born mere men, having the names of those gods who had come into being long before. But as it is with regard to Dionysus, the Hellenes say that as soon as he was born, Zeus sewed him up in his thigh and carried him to Nysa which is above Egypt in the land of Ethiopia. And as to Pan, they cannot say whether he went after he was born. Hence it has become clear to me that the Hellenes learnt the names of these gods later than those of other gods, and traced their descent as if their birth occurred at the time when they first learnt of their names. Thus far, then, the history is told by the Egyptians themselves. But I will now recount that which other nations also tell in the Egyptians in agreement with the others, of that which happened in this land, and there will be added to this also something of that which I have myself seen. 
Being set free after the reign of the priest of Hephaistos, the Egyptians, since they could not live any time without a king, set up over them twelve kings, having divided all Egypt into twelve parts. These made intermarriages with one another, and reigned, making agreement that they would not put down one another by force, nor seek to get an advantage over one another, but would live in perfect friendship. And the reason why they made these agreements, guarding them very strongly from violation, was this, namely that an oracle had been given to them at first when they began to exercise their rule, that he of them who should pour a libation with a bronze cup in the temple of Hephaistos should be king of all Egypt, for they used to assemble together in all the temples. Moreover they resolved to join all together and leave a memorial of themselves, and having so resolved, they caused to be made a labyrinth, situated a little above the lake of Moiris, and nearly opposite to that which is called the city of crocodiles. This I saw myself, and I found it greater than words can say. For if one should put together and reckon up all the buildings and all the great works produced by Hellenes, they would prove to be inferior in labor and expense to this labyrinth, though it is true that both the temple at Ephesus and that at Samos are works worthy of note. The pyramids also were greater than words can say and each one of them is equal to many works of the Hellenes, great as they may be. But the labyrinth surpasses even the pyramids. It has twelve courts covered in with gates facing one another, six upon the north side and six upon the south, joining on one to another, and the same wall surrounds them all outside, and there are in it two kinds of chambers, the one kind below the ground and the other above, upon these three thousand in number of each kind, fifteen hundred. The upper set of chambers we ourselves saw, going through them, and we tell of them having looked upon them with our own eyes. But the chambers underground we heard about only, for the Egyptians who had charge of them were not willing on any account to show them, saying that here were the sepulchres of the kings who had first built this labyrinth, and of the sacred crocodiles. Accordingly we speak of the chambers below by what we received from hearsay, while those above we saw ourselves and found them to be works of more than human greatness. For the passages through the chambers, and the goings this way and that way through the courts, which were admirably adorned, afforded endless matter for marvel as we went through from a court to the chambers beyond it, and from the chambers to colonnades, and from the colonnades to other rooms, and then from the chambers again to other courts. Over the whole of these is a roof made of stone like the walls, and the walls are covered with figures carved upon them, each court being surrounded with pillars of white stone fitted together most perfectly. And at the end of the labyrinth, by the corner of it, there is a pyramid of forty fathoms, upon which large figures are carved, and to this there is a way made under the ground. Such is this labyrinth, but a cause for marvel even greater than this is afforded by the lake, which is called the Lake of Moiris, along the side of which this labyrinth is built. The measure of its circuit is three thousand six hundred furlongs, being sixty shoins, and this is the same number of furlongs as the extent of Egypt itself along the sea. This lake lies extended lengthwise from north to south, and in depth where it is deepest it is fifty fathoms. That this lake is artificial and formed by digging is self-evident, for about in the middle of the lake stand two pyramids, each rising above the water to a height of fifty fathoms the part which is built below the water being of just the same height, and upon each is placed a colossal statue of stone sitting upon a chair. Thus the pyramids are a hundred fathoms high, 
and these hundred fathoms are equal to a furlong of six hundred feet, the fathom being measured as six feet or four cubits, the feet being four palms each and the cubits six. The water in the lake does not come from the place where it is, for the country there is very deficient in water, but it has been brought thither from the Nile by a canal, and for six months the water flows into the lake, and for six months out into the Nile again. And whenever it flows out, then for six months it brings into the royal treasury a talent of silver a day from the fish which are caught, and twenty pounds when the water comes in. The natives of the place, moreover, said that this lake had an outlet underground to the Sirtis, which is in Libya, turning towards the interior of the continent upon the western side and running along by the mountain which is above Memphis. Now since I did not see anywhere existing the earth dug out of this excavation, for that was a matter which drew my attention, I asked those who dwelt nearest to the lake where the earth was which had been dug out. These told me to what place it had been carried away, and I readily believed them, for I knew by report that a similar thing had been done at Nineveh, the city of the Assyrians. There certain thieves formed a design once to carry away the wealth of Sardanopolis, son of Ninos the king, which wealth was very great and was kept in treasure-houses under the earth. Accordingly they began from their own dwelling, and making estimate of their direction they dug underground towards the king's palace. And the earth which was brought out of the excavation they used to carry away when night came on, to the river Tigris which flows by the city of Nineveh, until at last they accomplished that which they desired. Similarly, as I heard, the digging of the lake in Egypt was effected, except that it was not done by night but during the day, for as they dug the Egyptians carried to the Nile the earth which was dug out, and the river when it received it would naturally bear it away and disperse it. Thus is this lake said to have been dug out. Now the twelve kings continued to rule justly, but in course of time it happened thus. After sacrifice in the temple of Hephaistos they were about to make libation on the last day of the feast, and the chief priest, in bringing out for them the golden cups with which they had been wont to pour libations, missed his reckoning and brought eleven only for the twelve kings. Then that one of them who was standing last in order, namely Sematikos, since he had no cup, took off from his head his helmet, which was bronze, and having held it out to receive the wine, he proceeded to make a libation. Likewise all the other kings were wont to wear the helmets, and they happened to have them then. Now Sematikos held out his helmet with no treacherous meaning, but they taking note of that which had been done by Sematikos and of the oracle, namely how it had been declared to them that whosoever of them should make a libation with a bronze cup should be sole king of Egypt, recollecting, I say, the saying of the oracle, they did not indeed deem it right to slay Sematikos, since they found by examination that he had not done it with any forethought. But they determined to strip him of almost all his powers, and to drive him away into the Fen country, and that from the Fen country he should not hold any dealings with the rest of Egypt. This Sematikos had formerly been a fugitive from the Ethiopian Sabakos, who had killed his father Nekos. From him, I say, he had then been a fugitive in Syria. And when the Ethiopian had departed in consequence of the vision of the dream, the Egyptians who were of the district of Sais brought him back to his own country. Then afterwards when he was king it was his fate to be a fugitive a second time on account of the helmet, being driven by the eleven kings into the Fen country. So then holding that he had been grievously wronged by them, he thought how he might take vengeance on those who had driven him out. And when he had sent to the oracle of Leto in the city of Buto, where the Egyptians have their most truthful oracle, 
there was given to him the reply that vengeance would come when men of bronze appeared from the sea, and he was strongly disposed not to believe that bronze men would come to help him. But after no long time had passed, certain Ionians and Carians who had sailed forth for plunder were compelled to come to shore in Egypt, and they having landed and being clad in bronze armor came to the Fenland and brought a report to Semeticos that bronze men had come from the sea and were plundering the plain. So he, perceiving that the saying of the oracle was coming to pass, dealt in a friendly manner with the Ionians and Carians, and with large promises he persuaded them to take his part. Then when he had persuaded them, with the help of those Egyptians who favored his cause, and of these foreign mercenaries, he overthrew the kings. Having thus got power over all Egypt, Semeticus made for Hephaistos that gateway of the temple at Memphis which is turned towards the south wind and he built a court for Apis, in which Apis is kept when he appears, opposite to the gateway of the temple, surrounded all with pillars and covered with figures, and instead of columns there stand to support the roof of the court, colossal statues twelve cubits high. Now Apis is in the tongue of the Hellenes Epaphos. To the Ionians and to the Carians who had helped him, Semeticos granted portions of land to dwell in, opposite to one another with the river Nile between. And these were called encampments. These portions of land he gave them, and he paid them besides all that he had promised. Moreover, he placed with them Egyptian boys to have them taught the Hellenic tongue, and from these, who learnt the language thoroughly, are descended the present class of interpreters in Egypt. Now the Ionians and Carians occupied these portions of land for a long time, and they are towards the sea a little below the city of Bubastus, on that which is called the Pelusian mouth of the Nile. These men King Amasis afterwards removed from thence and established them at Memphis, making them into a guard for himself against the Egyptians. And they being settled in Egypt, we who are Hellenes know by intercourse with them the certainty of all that which happened in Egypt, beginning from King Semeticos and afterwards. For these were the first men of foreign tongue who settled in Egypt. And in the land from which they were removed there still remained, down to my time, the sheds where their ships were drawn up, and the ruins of their houses. Thus then Semeticos obtained Egypt, and of the oracle which is in Egypt I have made mention often before this, and now I give an account of it, seeing that it is worthy to be described. This oracle which is in Egypt is sacred to Leto, and is established in a great city near that mouth of the Nile which is called Sibinudic, as one sails up the river from the sea, and the name of this city where the oracle is found is Buto, as I have said before in mentioning it. In this Buto there is a temple of Apollo and Artemis, and the temple-house of Leto, in which the oracle is, is both great in itself, and has a gateway of the height of ten fathoms. But that which caused me most to marvel of the things to be seen there I will now tell. There is in this sacred enclosure a house of Leto made of one single stone upon the top, the cornice measuring four cubits. This house, then, of all things that were to be seen by me in that temple is the most marvellous, and among those which come next is the island called Chemis. This is situated in a deep and broad lake by the side of the temple at Buto, and is said by the Egyptians that this island is a floating island. I myself did not see it either floating about or moved from its place, and I feel surprised at the hearing of it, wondering if it be indeed a floating island. In this island of which I speak there is a great temple-house of Apollo, and three several altars are set up within, and there are planted in the island many palm-trees and other trees, both bearing fruit and not bearing fruit. And the Egyptians, when they say that it is floating, add this story. 
namely that in this island which formerly was not floating leto being one of the eight gods who came into existence first and dwelling in the city of buto where she has this oracle received apollo from isis as a charge and preserved him concealing him in the island which is now said to be a floating island at that time when typhon came after him seeking everywhere and desiring to find the son of osiris now they say that apollo and artemis are children of dionysus and of isis and that leto became their nurse and preserver and in the egyptian tongue apollo is orus demeter is isis and artemis is bubastus from this story and from no other aeschylus the son of euphorion took this which i shall say wherein he differs from all the preceding poets he represented namely that artemis was the daughter of demeter for this reason then they say it became a floating island End of section 9. Recording by Philip Gould.